excerpt you just listened to is from Raylan Yunt's EP entitled Sun and was performed on the Yangqin, a Chinese string instrument that is played with a pair of bamboo mallets. Although the exact origins of this instrument are still debated amongst historians, one theory is that the instrument was brought to China via the Silk Road. Just as the Silk Road is seen as facilitating the exchange of cultures, languages, customs, and religions across Europe and Asia, Raylan, who I had the honor of speaking to in this episode of The Rights Pod, is committed to facilitating similar dialogue and cultural exchange with the Yangqin. In our conversation, we discussed his journey in mastering the Yangqin and how Tangram, a London-based artist collective that he co-founded and leads, and his production and performance of traditional and contemporary Yangqin songs are bridging the East-West divide. You're listening to The Rights Pod. Thank you so much for tuning in for this episode of The Rights Pod. My name is Kira Jasper, and I'm a student at Stanford studying history and the law and minoring in human rights. Today, I'm really honored to be joined by Raylan Yant. Raylan is a Yangqin player dedicated to creating an intersection between Chinese and American cultures through music. In 2014, he became the first person from North America to compete professionally in China, where he won a silver prize at the prestigious Baotou International Yangqin Arts Competition. Raylan has since introduced this rare instrument to the world stage. The 26-year-old Silk Road artist and 2020 City Music Foundation artist has performed internationally at venues such as TED Mainstage, Lincoln Center, and Qinghai Concert Hall. He was featured alongside Rihanna Giddens and Yo-Yo Ma at the 2016 Grammy Award-winning record Sing Me Home, which made him the first young Qin player to be recognized at the Grammys. He now lives in London, where he co-directs Tangram, an artist collective transcending the China-West divide through music. So thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me, Kira. Yeah, so just to start off, I'm really interested when you first learned about the young Qin and why you wanted to start mastering it. So I went to a bilingual school in San Francisco called the Chinese American International School. Um, I'm half Chinese. My mom is from Beijing and half white. And both of my parents cared a lot about um, my sister and me staying in touch with our Chinese heritage. So sent us to that school and it was an environment in which Um, it was as normal to learn a Chinese instrument as it was to learn cello or piano or violin. And so when I was in uh, third grade, let's see, yeah, when I was seven years old, our school started an after-school program for Chinese instruments and they had the teachers perform and I was just completely mesmerized by the Yangqin and started playing after, after school. From there, I started taking private lessons and one thing led to the other and it was a kind of perfect storm of being in the right place at the right time where I had great teachers. There's a wonderful, vibrant Chinese community and Chinese music community in San Francisco. So I had opportunities to perform. Um, They started holding great exams and competitions nearby. And then I got to study in China for a couple of summers and, and compete, like you mentioned. And So it was very organic um, and also very, I guess, anomalous because there were not a lot of places um, a kid like me could learn Chinese music outside of China. Um, So I'm just really grateful to my parents and my teachers who all made it possible. 
Yeah. Did you learn music through playing the Yangqin or had you learned other instruments before? I had a great music teacher in elementary school named Susan Kennedy, who taught us music classes through the ORF Showwork program, which um, works with like xylophones and glockenspiels to teach music in a very accessible way um, and multicultural way. So that I'd say was the foundation. And then learning Yangqin and specializing in Yangqin was my sort of way of diving deep into music and becoming a performer. So um, in the same way, I, you know, I have friends who study piano intensely um, throughout their childhood. That was me, but it was just, it was just on the Yangqin. Wow. And how do you read music for the Yangqin? What class is it in? And how do you, is it different from other instruments? It is different. So I learned in Chinese notation, which is oh, a wow. number system, also known as a zipper system, where um, it's kind of like solfege. So, you know, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti. Um, you're given what the first pitch is, what the key is at the top of the score. And then it's numbers one through seven. You have dots to indicate the octave. You have lines underneath to indicate the rhythm. Um, so that's the notation I used um, for most of my uh, education, my music education. And then I kind of had to learn staff notation as a second language of sorts in order to collaborate with, with um, Western musicians. That's amazing. Were there other Yangqin players at your high school or your elementary school? No, we had like five kids who stuck with Chinese instruments through um, eighth grade. And then in high school, I had one friend who played the guzheng, um, and which is a plucked zither. And uh, everyone else played, you know, guitar, piano, cello, those things. Um, so it was, you know, even more amazing that my music teacher in high school, David Williamson at the International High School, um, created space for me and like wrote a part for Yangqin in the school musical so that I could um, participate and uh, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. So sort of building off of that, how did, when and how did you decide that you wanted to pursue music professionally um, and what ultimately motivated you to pursue that path? Yeah, it was a long process because in high school, I knew that I loved music and it was just, it just felt so right. But, you know, I also grew up in an American culture that sort of cast the arts in this light of being ornamental and not as legitimate a career path as, you know, like being a businessman, for example. So whenever I got to Harvard, I had this mentality of wanting to try every other discipline and um, really kind of took the scenic route. And I majored in environmental science and public policy, which I loved in part because it was so multidisciplinary and I could take economics and chemistry and both of which I was horrible at um, alongside cultural sociology and environmental policy. And, you know, throughout that whole exploration, I was, you know, enjoying learning all these different things and trying to pull them together. Um, but it wasn't until I had the opportunity to work with Yo-Yo Ma and the Silk Road Ensemble at Harvard, performing with them on campus, that something else clicked. And I 
remembered what it felt like to be on that kind of stage and had the chance to work with top-notch musicians and see what that energy was. Um, so then something very deep inside me stirred then. Um, actually, I remember it was this kind of awkward um, interaction with them because they kept saying, why aren't you studying music? And I would sort of, you know, try to explain, I'm you know, they're like, why are you studying environmental policy? And there was a lot underneath that, you know, part of it was the music department at Harvard at the time was all focused on Western classical music. You had Western theory requirements, Western music history requirements, and I just didn't fit into the department there. My musical background just didn't. And uh, so, you know, that might've, you know, who knows, maybe if it was a different kind of music department, I would have studied music. But um, in that conversation with them, I started having this inner conflict of like, yeah, why, what is, what, what am I doing? So from there, I sort of shifted my focus to the cultural aspects of sustainability. So still thinking about environmental challenges and bringing in all of the things I've been learning in my classes as an environmental science public policy major, but then trying to reach back out to the artist within me. Um, and, but even by graduation, I wasn't planning on doing music. Um, I was lucky enough to win a Marshall scholarship, which brought me to the UK. And at that moment, I was still planning on being an arts manager to produce um, arts initiatives that by artists who cared about sustainable development, basically. But then when I got to, the, to London and did my first master's degree in music and development, um, which was essentially an applied ethnomusicology degree around how music and social change intersect, I had the chance to dive deep into music academically for the first time. And uh, once that happened, I realized, gosh, I need to be an artist first. Um, I need to keep doing this. And um, that's when I started committing to music more on a professional level. That's amazing. And I'm so glad that you were able to sort of have that empowerment, at, even though it wasn't maybe at Harvard later to, to really pursue that fully. Um, I wanted to dive in a little bit about your decision yeah, in London um, to change. So how did your, your pursuit of music academically inform you wanting to be an artist? Do you feel like there was any tension between that decision or do you feel like it was a natural um, depending on whatever major you did to pursue that more artistically? Yeah, I think there there has always been this tension, which is, I think, mostly culturally prescribed between my drive to be an entrepreneur and a critical thinker and my drive to be an artist. Um, I think I just assumed that those were separate categories and um, I, I just didn't really think about the way in which artists are entrepreneurs, critical thinkers, researchers, and leaders. Um, so it was just that framework that I had, you know, been a part of, and to some extent just self-reinforced, stopped me from really embracing um, myself as an artist. And, um, getting to London, I think the change came, it came, it did come naturally, mainly because of the change in environment and the 
chance to kind of let go of those initial assumptions, which then let my natural self kind of emerge um, and learning to follow my instincts and to legitimize my art, my artistic voice in combination with, with the academic frameworks, you know, like writing a dissertation in which ended up being two, composing two songs and writing about those two songs. I was exploring how to articulate a transcultural Chinese American identity through original songs on Yangqin. Use, applying my academic brain, I think helped legitimize, I think the artistic voice there. And then, um, you know, I'm still, I'm still in that process, I think of, of finding my voice as an artist. Um, but yeah, it was that letting go. And it was that kind of realization that these things weren't mutually exclusive, you know, critical thinking, entrepreneurship, art, music are not mutually exclusive and that it makes the most sense for me to, to be an artist um, and to, to be all of those things, you know, and to embrace that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was wondering if you could dig more into the tools that you've used and the framework that you've used in order yeah. to, to use Yangqin or music in general to have cultural exchange or to build communities yeah. um, or communities across cultures. Yeah. So I think there's kind of two angles to this. One to, which is closer to your question is the specific methodologies that helped build this bridge, which were ethnomusicology, a bit of cultural sociology, um, and I would say ethnography in general. These are incredible um, academic tools for unpacking the different ways music affects society and shapes people. Um, you know, uh, ethnomusicology is described as basically the study of how and why humans are musical. And part of that methodology is about talking to musicians and talking to listeners and just deep writing the story of, of how they make sense of music and how it affects them. So that I'd say is one, one academic angle. Those, those fields I, I think are, are so fascinating and helpful for building that bridge. The other angle is like very simple and just music being music and us just giving into it and listening to it. And there's so much that we can feel about how music the power of music essentially that needs no words. It needs no description. It's something that we can inherently connect with. I think, you know, when you're in a room where someone is making music and everyone's listening and everyone's dancing, it's like instant community. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vibration that's moving through all of our bodies and you don't need to explain it. Um, you, just, you just feel it and you go with it. and and it's beautiful. Um, so sometimes I, I find myself reacting to myself and to other people in that way when this question comes up about why music, what is the use of it or what is the connection to other disciplines or 
to social change and to solving the world's problems, sometimes my reaction is just like, just listen, just li just just open your ears and like, you'll know. <laughs> sort of building off that as well, when you talk about the power of music, how do you feel like that changes between being the performer and being the audience member? Um, and mm. how do you feel like each part plays a role in building that that community? That's a great question. I think it's both roles of being a performer and being a listener are, are you know, essential parts of, of the system. And I, I kind of see it as part of, part of a cycle. So for example, as a performer, um, in order to be a good performer, I have to be a good listener, whether that is in the rehearsal process or on the stage with other musicians on stage and, and being receptive to an audience or off stage, getting inspiration and learning from other musicians and absorbing that and applying it in my own practice. Um, that, that's one of the ways that listening is, is directly connected to performing. Um, and then I think another way that being a listener or a, a difference, I guess, with being a listener is the way in which listening can help activate other people. So artists and performers need listeners. Listeners in some ways give them energy or invite their energy. And if you're listening to someone, whether that's in a conversation or in like the way you're listening to me now, or in uh, like an, a musical exchange, that listening is an invitation, it's an openness and it's, it's, a, it's saying, hi, I'm ready to receive your energy, receive what you have to say. And that can be very empowering to the person being listened to, um, especially people who may be silenced in their lives or who don't get the chance to speak. Um, and then the power really is in their ability to let their voice out and find what is deep within them and, and let that emerge. Um, and I think that that sort of process of letting finding our voices and letting ourselves speak is so essential um, to building strong communities and to creating social change. You know, it's not just about one performer saying, hey, you all do this. You know, that's not that's like that's more like a dictator. Um, it's more like, hey, here's some energy, here's some music, here's some activation. What does that wake up inside you? What does that inspire in you? What do you have to say? Let's make this a conversation. Um, I'd say that like activating people's souls and voices is, is, you know, one of the most powerful things that music can do. Yeah. And I, I can understand now how that plays such a powerful role in cultural exchange, because at the end of the day, that is fundamentally what cultural exchange is. It is being humble enough to listen to somebody else and to receive mm -hmm. what they have to say and engage in that dialogue. Um, so that's a, mm -hmm. that's a really interesting point that you've made there. Sort of building off that as well, um, in, in thinking about the way or the, the use of music as a tool for cultural exchange, how have you or how have you seen in practice that being accessible to all classes of people, all groups of people, um, and what are ways that that has succeeded and other hurdles that have come in, in that area? I love that question. 
you know, I think accessibility in the arts in general is such an important topic and something that, you know, it, it's, it's something that needs to be talked about at every level. Because I think there are so many people in the US, for example, who feel like the arts aren't for them. They see the arts as like going to the ballet or going to the opera. And I think that's a kind of culturally and historically specific um, idea. And I think it's very unfortunate because I think we are all creative and we all are artistic and no one should be made to feel like they aren't knowledgeable enough or don't have enough cultural capital to partake in the arts because the arts can happen at every level, um, whether it's super high produced and like really fancy or, you know, doing something with like sticks and, or, you know. And so in terms of cultural exchange, I believe that it can happen at any level. In terms of the successes, ooh, this is tough. This is really tough. I would say, you know, two ends of the spectrum. One is seeing the Silk Road Ensemble perform at Tanglewood. Um, just like magnificent performance. Um, Kenan Azmi, who's a clarinetist, he's from Syria. He composed this piece for the ensemble called Wedding. And he talked about, this was a couple years ago, this performance, he talked about dedicating this to all of the Syrians who, um, are in love during a, a period of conflict and he's replicating the scene of, of these of weddings that would happen in Damascus out on the streets and like this feeling of celebration amidst dif you know difficult circumstances and you know a couple thousand people there cheering and bawling um, is I'd say a, a very grand grand example of a successful moment of cultural exchange. And then I'd say one that's um, more uh, earthy was getting a chance to take my Yangqin to Northern California to this fiddle camp called Shasta Fiddle Camp, where I met a person who plays the American Hammer Dulcimer. And there I just had these wonderful exchanges with him and the other musicians there who come from an American kind of folk tradition. It's very, like social and loving, um, tune driven music culture where people are just sharing tunes and learning things by ear. And I taught them this Chinese tune called Thunder After the Drought and they were all learning it on the fiddle and, and the bass and everything. And it was just so fun. Um, and I just, I learned so much from that experience, I think that experience planted the seed for me to write, start writing my own folk songs. Um, and I hope that they also had a great time seeing this instrument and, and learning some Chinese music. Um, so those are, those are um, some of the successes. And then I'd say some of the challenges, it has to do with, I'd say like conventions, spaces and notation. Notation and conventions, I'd say, maybe are, are kind of the same, but musicians, we all, we all grow up with, with certain conventions of how we learn music. So a pianist who's used to sight reading everything um, and working with a conductor may have a really hard time working with a gamelan player from Bali who uh, plays bronze barred hammered instruments that are part of the that, that everyone learns and, and, and does by playing through together and through memory. And 
that communication in that rehearsal setting, you know, you can't just cut and paste people together. You have to find a common language and a common process. And that's hard. That needs to be built um, from scratch many, many times. And that's a struggle I run into all the time because staff notation is like a second language to me. So I cannot sight read as fast as my chamber musician colleagues and always kind of fumbling through. Um, and the assumptions we make about about how people process music and um, seen a lot of that in, in cross-cultural music settings and you know unpacking that is hard and then um, the spaces yeah I think it's just we have a lot of venues and and space spaces for music making that are genre specific and and you know, we've got like classical music and pop music are like almost completely two com separate industries. Um, and, you know, let alone the many different music cultures from different countries around the world, jazz, you know, these different scenes. So creating spaces or opportunities for venues to do cross genre things and blend, um, I think is, is very exciting and important if we want to have genuine cultural exchange and, and listening across these perceived borders. Yeah, that's really interesting. Also kind of going back to composing. So you said both for your masters and also now that you're composing music. And I was curious if you can talk more about your process for composing. Um, and if, if you have things that you hope the audience feels and also like when you're creating art, um, yeah, what that process looks like for you. Yeah, I would say the one of the biggest things I've learned about composing is the process is a work of art in itself and figuring out your process is a creative act and you can you just have to find what works for you specifically and you know this is from someone who grew up learning Chinese music and um, you know just didn't have the same kind of educational opportunities as my friends who went to conservatories or who you know, studied music theory and in piano school or who had like a band to play in with their guitar. And, and I just had to, I had this sort of nomadic path of zigzagging between different collaborations and ultimately having to piece together my own process. But that, that was such a liberating experience when I realized like, I don't have to compose like a singer songwriter. I don't have to compose like, you know, a Western classical composer. I can, figure out how I make music and do that. So, so for me, it's all, it all kind of comes down to listening and, and, and figuring things out by ear. I um, do a lot of improvisation. So I'll, I'll improvise things and record things and kind of collage those together and then turn that into a composition. And I'm still experimenting with, with different ways of making music and, yeah, so I'd say improvisation, collage, and melody, kind of playing with different melodies. I think Chinese music, at least the way I learned it, is very melody driven. So that's always been kind of how I, that's what I pay attention to a lot of the times in music. So when I write songs, I'm either thinking of a melody and then finding words that fit into it or switching when I need to and knowing what words to come next and then figuring out the notes that come next. So it's something I'm, I'm still figuring out as I go, but that's what I would wanna share with, with the audience is that's, that's 
how artists work is they they make up not only the artwork but they also make up their own artistic process and that's I think a very freeing thing yeah that's incredible can you talk to a bit about your decision or the process of adding words or lyrics to to the melody um and if that is traditional young chin is with words or if it's usually not with words yeah so it's very non-traditional um to sing while playing yang chin there is in chinese folk music there is a culture of folk musicians singing and playing their instruments at the same time but it tends to be um you know centered around an, an existing sung folk tune and what i'm trying out now and and and, and people don't really do that today. Um, so what I basically was noticing is that I started by covering songs I really liked on Yangqin because I love listening to India alternative and folk and pop music. And I hadn't really made that connection between these two sides of my musical self. And so I was just playing around with covering songs and I noticed that the Yangqin, which is a percussive string instrument there's a um, 144 strings that I hit with bamboo mallets and it's harmonically very rich. It's very versatile. It's rhythmic. Um, and so it's a great accompaniment to voice. Um, and so I just decided to start writing my own accompaniments to these covers and ultimately writing my own songs. And I think it's because I've, I've just always loved songs and, you know, I grew up, with just this soundtrack that my dad would play that ranged from like Annie Lennox, Nora Jones, Talking Heads, Radiohead, uh, like Brian, you know, Peter Gabriel. And that's always been there. That's actually always been a part of my musical consciousness. This, um, you know, English singer songwriter, I don't even know what to call it. Like just pop music <laughs> kind of uh, dimension. And I always sort of discounted that and said, well, I'm a Yangqin player, so I'm just going to be playing the traditional and contemporary Yangqin pieces. And then when I got to London and was doing this degree, I was like, no, actually, this is as much a part of my musical self as the Yangqin is. So as someone who's always been caught between categories and feeling like I'm in, I'm in that space in between and as a result, feeling very fragmented across genres, disciplines, and cultures, I ultimately realized like, the way to synthesize all of this is to just create. And the creative act automatically generates continuity out of fragmentation and brings together all these elements. And you don't have to rationalize like, how does Chinese music fit in with folk music and fit in with environmental? It's, it's through creating that you answer that question. Um, and uh, so that, that was the, the big discovery, I think, in the first year. Um, and, and my initial project was, you know, composing two folk songs on Yangqin where I sing and play at the same time and iterating this completely new form of Yangqin music and synthesizing the Western and Chinese musical systems I grew up with and the influences that come from both cultures. And the songs that result are just a mix like I am. <laughs> um, and that was, 
I think my first moment of really finding my voice as an artist, because prior to that, I'd say I was more of a, a performer, you know, like a deliverer of music rather than a music creator. And so that was, I'd say, a, a significant turning point in my um, path. Yeah, so transitioning then with, with being a creator, um, as I said in the introduction, you're also the co-director of Tangram, which is an artist collective. And I was curious if you could talk more about why you decided to create the collective and what the collective has done for you and also for other people in it regarding the creative process um, and in this goal of trying to bridge or even transcend the China West divide. Yeah. So when I got to London, I knew almost no one. Um, I, and one of the few people I knew was a British composer named Alex Ho, born and raised in London, parents from Hong Kong, classically trained composer. And we met through a mutual friend and we had tea and we're just talking about where we were as, as you know, artists and students. And we discovered that we had this shared interest in exploring diasporic Chinese identity through music. So me from the angle of a Yangqin player who's biracial and grew up in the U.S. and him from the angle of a Hong Kongese, British, British Chinese composer who's totally Western classically trained. And we realized we had so much in common and we had a certain angst and we had certain questions in common about you know, what does it mean to grow up in between these cultures and to try to fit into one culture or the other and never, it, it never really work. And uh, why do we feel nostalgic for China or for Hong Kong when we've never actually really lived there? And it's, it's all in our imaginations through our parents. And, and, you know, these questions that I think a lot of people share with us um, and getting to connect with him through that shared question empowered us to create art with a shared purpose. So we decided to collaborate. We worked on a solo together. He composed a solo for me to perform called Rituals and Resonances, where we tried to materialize and express this paradoxical feeling of nostalgia of the child of Chinese diaspora. And it's a piece that really explores parts of the body of the, the Yangqin that I've never like really explored before. Almost like listening to this instrument as a landscape and, you know, like the uncharted territory that we're walking into as transcultural people. And that was such an inspiring and enriching creative experience that we just knew we had to keep going and keep doing this and keep creating these connections. So we co-founded Tangram, bringing together other artists of Chinese descent in London to explore these questions creatively together. And it's been amazing because we have people from China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, the US, the UK, Canada, you know, these countries that like purportedly have all of these you know, borders separating them, um, you know, all this geopolitical tension or, or at least separation. Um, and we're all vibing on this other plane <laughs> and 
and just kind of beginning to create our own cultural space and, and seeing what happens when we create art and we create culture from where we are instead of trying to create culture from one place or another, like from the Chinese side of us or from the uh, British side of us. Um, and just letting go of that baggage and just creating something. And it's been an amazing two year journey. Um, we've made, we've, we've, I think all stepped outside of our comfort zones as artists and we've all learned a lot. And this year we're gonna be making a lot more content, both digital content and also producing um, live work. So we're really excited to see where this um, movement goes. Yeah. So thinking about the future of both the collective um, and also your musical journey, how has everything being switched digitally impacted your work in the creative process and your ability to pursue that goal? Um, and where do you see the collective moving forward? On the one hand, it is it has been devastating this last year. There are so many musicians who are struggling. Um, live music is it's one of the industries that I think is getting hit the hardest and you know, live arts in general, because they're like the first venues to close and the last to open in, in the economy. So it's, it's definitely a struggle. You know, we've had canceled performances. For me, I was kind of getting ready to really hit the ground running um, and, and start gigging. And I had to kind of reroute myself, but I feel very grateful because I've been able to um, stay relatively stable and safe throughout this. And I think the main response has been treating this like a cocoon phase and really thinking about development. So for me, I've taken this time to go really deep to figure out who I am as an artist and, and what I want to, how I can serve people as an artist, um, what I have to offer, what I have to say, what the purpose is behind my art. With the collective, we've been able to sort of regroup um, and do that same kind of research and development process to, to strategize about how we want to build ourselves, what we have to offer, um, what our theory of change is, things like that. And I think we're going to be mostly still doing that this year while we can't perform live. But um, it has been fruitful. You know, we've got new ideas about how to become a platform that empowers artists to tell stories and create experiences that transcend the China West divide. We see this as a very important mission at a time when China and the US are experiencing a lot of geopolitical tension and people in the general public don't have any kind of blueprints for a future that is uh, peaceful and collaborative between these countries between China and, and the US and the UK and other countries in the West, they're just going off of the rhetoric from political leaders, which I think has been very divisive and it has not been culturally informed. It has not been humanistic. And our hope is to begin to start a conversation that gets us to look past politics basically <laughs> and, and the messiness. Um, and remember these are, these are people um, that we're talking about. And there are multitudes of ways that we can connect and so much we can learn from each other's cultures. 
so that's that's the conversation we want to we want to get started. And and in terms of concretely what's happening next, I'd say the main the main thing is we're going to be building up our YouTube channel as a platform for collaborative performance, knowledge sharing, and community building around the theme of transnational imagination. So that's uh, Tangram on YouTube, and we're really excited about finding different ways to break the fourth wall in, with our audience and talk about what it means to build a, a community through creative action and just share more music with people and show people instruments like the Yangqin and how they work and their history and yeah. I guess as a final question, I'm curious, given how the, over the past 12 months, especially in the US, but also around the world, there's been a forced reconsideration of a lot of the issues that our country and our world has faced that has been subsided for so long. So I'm thinking specifically the Black Lives Matter movement, thinking really critically about environment and climate change and all of these other social issues. Yeah, I'm curious what your perspective is on the role of music in some of these other social movements. And you've, you've already spoken on the US and the West and China um, political tension, but just thinking more about the tools um, that can be used and maybe applied in other social movements, what you think those are? Yeah, yeah. I think the framework we've had available to us for thinking about the role of music and the arts in social change has been very instrumental, no pun intended. This idea of like the politicians and the economists uh, and the technologists are and the and the innovators are thinking about are leading the charge for social change and then the artists you know complement it with some nice little decoration that that you know adds some yeah. feelings to the whole thing and I am much more interested in going way deeper and thinking about actually how how culture and how our value systems shape the way we think about the world and create the conditions for oppression, um, for white supremacy, for climate chaos in ways that I think we haven't talked about and how artists can be the, the catalysts and the, the leaders who help us change that and help us transcend these dated worldviews um, and these assumptions about the limitations of, of how we can reform a nation or reform um, an economic system in favor of something that's more sustainable and interconnected and peaceful. Um, so I see a lot of the problems you mentioned. So, you know, white supremacy and, and climate change for to take two big ones uh, as, an, as examples, I see them as cultural crises. You know, I, I, I think that in the US, we've played ourselves by, cre by eliminating spaces for cultural exchange and dialogue, even just within the US. People don't have outlets for expressing how they feel and processing grief and collective trauma, historical trauma. People don't have the instincts for imagining new possibilities, for facing the unknown without fear 
I think a lot of this actually comes down to just arts education. You know, it, it, arts education is seen as superfluous and it's the first thing to get cut, but it's the, it's that, that's where we teach people, where people learn how to be creative, how to listen, how to be excited by the unknown instead of afraid, how to think creatively, how to think imaginatively and how to work together. And we've gutted that part of our social process. And we've told everyone, only do things that make you money. Like money will solve all problems. And so we have people going into careers that, you know, shoehorn them into these, these systems and suppress their creative capacities, their inner child, their playful self, their imaginative self, and their feeling self. And I think there's, there's an element here of, you know, the patriarchy of, you know, while we're critiquing all of these structures, I grew up in San Francisco and in high school, there was one kid who was out and I, I'm queer and like, I didn't come out until college and I grew up in San Francisco and I had, we had like a quarter of our faculty was queer and out wow. and yet, and what, what I want to say here is that like ma toxic masculinity, culture of masculinity, it, it's everywhere and we have so many boys and men and people of all genders who are told that feeling is bad and being sensitive is bad and and like having emotional capacities and and thinking and you know a sensual power you know uh, you go on and on is bad and and I think when we suppress all of that emotion you know our, our inner artists we explode and we have these like rampages uh where we don't talk to each other, we yell at each other, we, we, we see everything as, you know, two sides and uh, we attack each other. And I want to know what would it look like if we had spaces locally, regionally and nationally fora for people to express how they feel, to perform, to work through um, the complexity of human existence and of these conflicts through embodied and sonic and visual languages and, and stop debate, like stop reducing everything to a tweet and a political debate on CNN where you're yelling at each other and there's no way to actually convey the depth and complexity of what we're trying to talk about. What would happen if we had those spaces? What would happen if culture was valued and brought in as cultural systems were brought in as a part of nation building and artists were given a platform to share their wisdom and create dehabitualizing experiences that give people light bulb moments where they they change you know like pe for people to change from within what would happen you know and and would would my hope is that people is that everyone can feel heard and empowered to be creative. And, and I think the more we can make that happen through the arts and through creation and through arts education, I think the more we can create those cultural conditions for constructive social change um, and, and 
and begin to reform the value systems that underlie so many of our problems. Because I think we're, we're, we're treating the symptoms, but we're not always actually addressing the root cause of, of these problems. Sun is out and somehow the guys decide that I can come along. Hey, what do you say? We know a way. Come find us further on. I'm so lucky to work with so many amazing artists and I am so indebted to the people I work with. So I, I would just give a shout out to Alex Ho and all of the Tangram artists who have created such an amazing ecosystem for me to grow in as, as a creative person. So I would recommend people to check out tangramsound.com um, and see the other artists in this collective because they're all really fascinating and amazing and inspiring. Thank you so much again, Raylan, for sharing your story and insights in today's episode. To keep human rights close to your home, you're listening to The Rights Pod.